Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. We are continuing our sermon series going through the Gospel of Mark, and we are nearing the halfway point. We titled the sermon series, Reintroducing Jesus, as a reminder that we need to continually engage the Gospels to truly and personally know Jesus. It is easy for our thinking to go adrift. It's easy for us to forget important truth that we have previously learned. So we want to reintroduce ourselves to Jesus as we work our way through the Gospel of Mark. The title also points to the broader purpose that we hope and pray God will accomplish through the preaching and hearing of his word. Namely, that we will be a people who are being continually formed into the image of Jesus through the spirit-empowered preaching of God's word. In our passage this morning, we hear the words of Jesus and see the deeds of Jesus. As we learn about him and know him more, our prayer is that our hearts will be stirred to worship him as true worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. We also pray that our hearts will be stirred to become more like him. Sometimes this is painful. Sometimes this is painful when the Lord reveals to us ways in which we are not like Jesus, convicting us of our sin. But even when the process is painful, it is still good. We embrace the painful process of sanctification, knowing that the Lord is working through these times to produce good fruit in us and to increase our joy in Jesus. So as we proceed with Mark chapter 8, let's engage the scriptures prayerfully with the desire to become more like Jesus. I will be reading Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 26. Again, that's Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 26. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, be, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? 
When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was recovered, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. So our passage begins with a second instance of Jesus miraculously feeding a large crowd with a very small amount of food. We see quickly in our passage that the, uh, the crowd was hungry, but we see that they were hungry in more than one way. Jesus said to his disciples that the crowd had been, with, had been with him three days and had nothing to eat. The crowd had spent three days with Jesus, listening to him teach. Think about this. They had spent three days in a remote place with a short supply of food just so they could listen to Jesus teach. Why? Because whether they understood it or not, they were hungry for the word. They humbly sought after Jesus, willing to travel far, willing to set aside a considerable amount of time, whether to, uh, willing to forego even eating food so that they could take the humble posture of sitting and listening to Jesus. Their hunger for the word brought them to a place where they also became hungry for food. Of course, Jesus observed that they had become hungry, and he cared. The feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6 was initiated by the disciples of Jesus when they told Jesus to dismiss the crowd so that they could go get something to eat. But the feeding of the 4,000 here in Mark chapter 8 was initiated by Jesus. Jesus said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. Jesus cared about the physical well-being of the crowd. Clearly, preaching and teaching was primary in the ministry of Jesus. He first and foremost came to proclaim the gospel of God, whereby he said the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He came first and foremost to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God because that is what we need most. We have all sinned against God. We have all disobeyed him. We have rebelled against our God and our King. And because of that, we deserve judgment. If God were only to give us what we deserve, we would all spend eternity in hell. But because he is merciful, he sent Jesus into the world to save sinners such as us. And we are saved through the hearing and responding to the proclamation of the gospel. So we needed Jesus to come into the world to reveal himself and proclaim the kingdom so that we can repent, believe, and be saved. Clearly, preaching and teaching was primary in the ministry of Jesus. It was primary but not to the exclusion of caring for people's physical well-being. 
Jesus had compassion on the crowd because they were hungry. So hungry, in fact, that they could faint if they tried to travel home before getting something to eat. The Greek word for compassion is a strong word that refers to being deeply moved or affected in one's innermost parts. And in the first century, they thought of one's innermost parts as the bowels. So when they thought of compassion, they thought of someone who was moved or affected in their bowels. My wife Genevieve had a math class at Northwest University where the professor was a missionary on furlough. He had a math background, but teaching a college-level math class was not his primary thing. It was not his normal rhythm. He did not have a lot of practice. So you can imagine this posed challenges for many of the students as he was not accustomed to teaching this class. So many of them struggled. They had a hard time following him. Uh, The class was stressful. Except for one student who was exceedingly intelligent, he seemed to have no problem with the class. When the time came for the final, Genevieve and many of the students were not able to complete the final in the allotted amount of time, which caused them great anxiety and distress. Time was up, they didn't get near, near, uh, nearly close to finishing, and they had to walk away, and so as she was walking back to the dorms, she was uh, visibly distraught. And this one student who was, again, had no problem finishing the final on time, walked past her and saw that she was distraught, and he said, what's the matter? She said, I was not able to to finish the final. And he said, stinks to be you, and kept on walking, dead serious. Clearly, he did not feel her pain in his bowels. That would be the opposite of compassion. That would be indifference. Now, I don't say that to cast dispersions on this fellow student because he actually became and remains one of my good friends. He also may or may not be related to Kaylin and Sam Ford and Janet and Dick Lee. That's beside the point. He is actually someone I respect a great deal and has demonstrated Christ-like compassion in a variety of ways. I also don't want to cast dispersions because to do so would be very hypocritical of me. How many times have I responded to someone else's pain with indifference? Indifference is the enemy of compassion. You see, when Jesus saw the hunger of the crowd, he didn't say, well, that's too bad. Don't look at me. It's not my fault. I didn't force them to stay. They could have come and gone as they pleased. I came here to do the most important thing, which is to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. I did my part. They made their decisions. They can take care of their own needs. They made their decisions. They need to live with it. No. Instead, He was deeply affected by their problem. Their hunger became his burden. Brothers and sisters, this is compassion. When someone else's problem, when someone else's pain, when someone else's suffering becomes your burden, you are growing in Christ-like compassion. And don't we want to grow in this way? Don't we want to be known as people who are full of Christ-like compassion? Let me tell you, if we do, then we desperately need the Spirit's help. 
Because when other people's problems become our burdens, it can be exhausting. I promise you, indifference is the easier path. But it is not the path for us. We are called to be people who, through the power of the Spirit, are becoming more like Jesus. In light of this, let's pray. Let's pray that God will grant us repentance from indifference and fill us with compassion as Jesus is full of compassion. Despite the earlier feeding of the 5,000, the disciples questioned how it would be possible to feed such a large crowd in in a desolate place. One commentator noted that the Greek translation of the disciples' question in verse 4 might be better translated as, for who is able in this remote region to satisfy these people with bread? Who is able in this remote region to satisfy these people with bread? And after Jesus performed the miracle, we read in verse 8, and they ate and were satisfied. The answer to the question of verse 4 is Jesus. Who was able to satisfy these people with bread? Jesus was able to satisfy those people with bread. Jesus was able to satisfy their physical hunger, which points to a much greater and more profound reality. It's not just that Jesus was able to satisfy the crowd that day in an extraordinary way. No, it's not just that Jesus was able to satisfy. It's that Jesus is able to satisfy. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. When we read this, he is not referring to physical hunger and physical thirst. He was referring to the deepest longings of our souls. Jesus was saying, I am the one who is able to satisfy you as no one else is able to satisfy you. Jesus Christ is the one and only who is able to satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. The question that we are confronted with is, are we hungry? Are we hungry for the word? Are we hungry like the crowd in that we are willing to humbly seek after Jesus? That we are willing to go to great lengths in pursuing him? That we are willing to set aside time? That we are willing to take the position of a humble learner at his feet? Are we hungry? And where are we seeking satisfaction? Friends, if we are seeking satisfaction in anything or anyone other than Jesus, we will never be satisfied. All the best things this world has to offer will leave us wanting more. You can have all of the best things and still not be satisfied. Jesus alone is the one who is able to satisfy us. I hope and pray that we are hungry for the word and that we seek satisfaction in him. In the next part of our text, Jesus had an encounter with the Pharisees. It seems as though Mark wants us to view these passages together as he refers back to the feeding in his discussion with the disciples about the Pharisees. 
Mark may have been wanting to contrast the response of the crowd to Jesus with the response of the Pharisees to Jesus. The crowd came to Jesus hungry for the word and willing to invest their time to hear the word, taking a posture of humility, listening to the word. As a result, they witnessed a miracle and came away satisfied. On the other hand, the Pharisees did not come to Jesus to hear and understand. Rather, they came to test him. They did not approach Jesus with humility. They approached him with hostility. They demanded a sign from heaven. Their attitude was, you need to prove yourself to us. If you want us to go along with you, if you want us to endorse you, then you need to do what we ask. You need to prove yourself to us. First of all, Jesus does not have to prove himself to anybody. He graciously came into the world revealing himself and calling people to repent of their sin and believe in him. This was an extraordinary act of God's mercy and kindness to sinners such as us. Again, he did not owe us anything, but in his mercy and his love and his kindness, he sent Jesus into the world to save us and rescue us, and Jesus graciously revealed himself to us in a number of ways. This is an extraordinary act of loving kindness because he did this in spite of the fact we have not deserved it whatsoever. But we must not be mistaken. Jesus graciously revealed himself to us, but he does not need to prove himself to us. He does not need to prove himself to anybody. He is, not need, he is in no need of the approval of man. Secondly, Jesus did not come to do the bidding of prideful, self-righteous hypocrites like the Pharisees. As Donald English pointed out, Jesus performed miraculous signs only when, in the normal course of events, the needs of the people confronted him, and he responded with compassion. Jesus was not going to contrive a situation to prove a point about himself to a prideful and unbelieving audience. So when the Pharisees came to came to him seeking a sign, we read that he sighed deeply in his spirit and refused to give them a sign. He sighed deeply. He was grieved by their unbelief. He was grieved by the fact that his people, whom he came to save, rejected him and failed to believe in him. He was grieved by the fact that these uh, people, in particular these religious leaders who studied the Torah, who should have been the first to recognize him and receive him and point others to him, rejected him. He was deeply grieved by their unbelief. Then Jesus left them. The interaction with the Pharisees prompted a conversation between Jesus and his disciples, whereby he warned them about the yeast of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And what did he mean by this metaphor? What did he mean when he referred to the yeast of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? Well, James Edwards wrote, Matthew identifies the metaphor of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod as the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And Luke identifies it as the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Mark leaves the metaphor unexplained. And its exact meaning is a matter of debate since the Pharisees and Herod Antipas apparently had little in common. The seriousness of the danger is clear. The word for warned means to order or command. And twice Jesus says, be careful and watch out for the yeast. Mark didn't explain the metaphor, but it probably included the teaching and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, which speaks to the way they were influencing people. They were teaching one thing and practicing another thing. They were putting stumbling blocks in people's way. 
They were not pointing people to Christ. They were actually getting in the way of people coming to Christ. So he was warning them against their influence. As if he was saying, like, don't, don't try to appease them. Don't try to cater to them. Be careful about them. Avoid them. When Jesus provided this metaphor, the disciples were confused and they started talking, thinking uh, amongst themselves, thinking it had something to do with the bread, the leftover bread they had left behind. They're like, oh, I guess we should have brought, brought the baskets of bread. We only got one piece of bread. And Jesus is going, really? That's what you're taking away from this conversation? How many baskets of bread did we have left over the first time? How many the second time? Why are you worried about bread? Don't you understand? He critiqued their failure to understand. The failure of the Pharisees was a failure of unbelief. The failure of the disciples in this case was a failure to understand. This serves as a good reminder that we want to be people of faith, believing in Jesus, who are also continually growing in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus. Our trust in Jesus and our knowledge of Jesus are meant to grow together. And our passage ends with an interaction between Jesus and a man who was blind. And what took place with the man who was blind is the very thing that Donald English described in the quote I just read. In the normal course of events, Jesus was confronted with the needs of a man who was blind, and Jesus responded with compassion. Unlike the Pharisees, the man recognized that he had a desperate need. Because he recognized his desperate need, he approached Jesus with humility, begging for help. The physical blindness of the man led him to approach Jesus in the right way. The spiritual blindness of the Pharisees led them to approach Jesus in the wrong way. The Pharisees who wanted Jesus to prove himself to them did not get what they asked for, while the man who wanted Jesus' help did get what he asked for. But even then, Jesus led the man away from the people before he performed the miraculous healing. He was not going to put on a show. The man had a physical ailment. Jesus cared about his physical well-being. He saw the man in distress and had compassion on him, restoring his sight. It is interesting that the healing of the blind man happened in two stages. Jesus spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, and the man was able to see, but his vision was blurry. Jesus laid hands on him a second time, and his vision was fully restored. Surely, Jesus could have healed him entirely with one touch. So why did this miracle happen in two stages? Well, truth be told, we don't know. We don't know because Mark gives us no explanation. I think it's possible that the two-stage healing, where the man finally regained his sight, was a parable of sorts. After all, it takes place in the context of Mark chapter 8, shortly after Jesus rebuked his disciples for their under, uh, failure to understand him, for their failure to see. It takes place shortly before Peter's great confession of Jesus, whereby he declared, you are the Christ, only to turn around and rebuke Jesus when Jesus told him that he must suffer and die. In other words, the disciples were beginning to see, but clearly they were not seeing the whole picture. They were beginning to see and believe in Jesus, but they did not fully understand everything about Jesus and all the things that Jesus must do. 
And so it's possible that the healing of this man points to the the nature of a progressive understanding of Jesus that happens sometimes, where you begin to see, you begin to understand, but you do not fully understand. And sometimes it takes time to fully see and understand who Jesus is. It's possible that the two-stage healing points to this, but it's possible it doesn't. We don't know exactly. What we do know is this. While we may not share the same physical ailment as the man who approached Jesus that day, we do all need the Lord to give us spiritual sight. Just as we need him to give us ears to hear, we need him to give us eyes to see and behold. In his letter to the churches in Ephesus, Paul prayed that, the God, that God would give the Ephesian Christians eyes to see. In Ephesians 1, 15-21, we read, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God the Father restores our sight through Jesus Christ so that we might see, so that we might behold, so that we might rejoice. The healing of the blind man was one more piece of glorious evidence that the kingdom of God had arrived in the person of Jesus, which is good news for blind sinners such as us. Brothers and sisters, I hope we see the compassion of Jesus, and I hope we understand our desperate need for a compassionate Savior. The Pharisees failed to see this. They failed to understand that they needed Jesus just as much as the disciples, just as much as the crowd that spent three days with him, and just as much as the man who was blind. Their pride kept them from recognizing their desperate need for a Savior. And so instead of approaching him in humility, they approached him with hostility. But to those who humbled themselves and sought him, those who were needy, those who asked for help, received far better than they hoped for. They received the love and the mercy and the compassion of a wonderful and mighty Savior in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, as those who have received his compassion... We are called to show his compassion. As those who are the beneficiaries of the extraordinary compassion of Jesus, we are called to walk in that compassion toward others. It's when we recognize our need, when we recognize how desperately we need his compassion, we are better able to show compassion to others. He showed us compassion not because we deserved it, not because we got our act together, not because we cleaned ourselves up and made ourselves presentable. He showed us compassion even while we were filthy in our sin. 
we are the beneficiaries of extraordinary compassion. And we are called to show compassion to others. In Colossians 3, 12 through 14, we read, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray.